0: art and science is more intertwined and interlinked. Um, I think it would make both art and science better. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team, with the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus. Science and art have not always been so separately defined. Leonardo da Vinci studied anatomy, neuroscientist Santiago Ramon y Cajal created beautiful drawings of the cells in the cerebellum and hippocampus, and the painter John Constable observed the skies with an almost scientific eye for detail. Though their pursuits have since diverged into distinct fields, the relationship between art and science has remained tightly woven together. Documenting the history of this intimate relationship is The Art of Innovation. Comprising a 20-part BBC4 radio series, an exhibition at the Science Museum and an accompanying book, The Art of Innovation shows how scientific discoveries have influenced, and been influenced by, the works of artists. Editorial assistant Amy Barrett visited the Science Museum's Dana Research Centre and Library to meet the Head of Collections and Principal Curator at the Science Museum, and also co-host of the Art of Innovation radio series, Dr Tilly Blythe.
0: So I'm Head of Collections and Principal Curator, which means um, that I'm responsible for our wonderful curatorial team that think about um, researching the collections, acquiring new objects into the collections, but also developing our galleries and exhibitions. Um, and I'm also responsible for the research department, so we do lots of um, interesting research into the objects that we hold and into the history of science, technology and medicine. Um, and finally, um, I have responsibility for the library and archives. So We have over 7 million items in the collections. Uh, obviously, you won't see many of those on display in the Science Museum, and we hold those items in store. Um So, yeah, there's there's many more stories that we're able to tell about our wonderful collections um, than you might find just coming on a visit to the Science Museum.
2: You've been working with the BBC on a project called The Art of Innovation. Um, What is that project and what have you been doing for it?
0: So it's a really exciting project um, that we've been developing with the BBC and I think it's really fun because it's actually a transmedia project. It's one of the only projects that we've done that works... Um, in three different formats so there's the radio series that we've worked with the BBC on which is a 20-part radio series Um, and then there's an exhibition that will accompany that radio series so lots of the things that we talk about in the radio series will be able to be viewed in the exhibition and then we've also created a book as well um, that enables us to kind of elaborate on some of those stories that we're talking about and I think For me, it's been the first time that we've been able to use those three different mediums to really help to um, tell rich stories in different ways. So, you know, you get something totally different from the exhibition that you'll get from from the radio series or the book.
2: So the series tells us how art has been an observer, a friend and a critic of science. Can you explain how those roles have come about and evolved over time? Um, Well, I think,
0: I mean, as we show in the series and the exhibition, it's... um, it's, it's very interesting if you look at the relationship between the two. We tend to think of them as quite separate disciplines. We tend to think of science as about experimentation and um, routine and about knowledge and art is about kind of creativity and imagination. But if you actually begin to explore that, those divisions are not really there. Many of the activities that you undertake um, as a scientist are the same as um, an artist. So in particular with relationship to the observer, you know, if you're an artist looking at the sky, you're observing the clouds, you're thinking about the form of those clouds, you're thinking about how that might change at different times in the day. Um, And if you're a scientist, you're doing exactly the same thing. So, you know, it's the same types of, um, activities You might be bringing different knowledge and understanding to those things, but um, it's very much the same basis of kind of inquiring, trying to understand the world around us and, and trying to make sense of that. Um, so one of the stories we talk about is actually how Constable was looking at the clouds. He undertook this activity uh, called skying where he would walk around Hampstead Heath and draw um, pictures of the clouds, you know, quick pictures, but he would always put the time of day, the date on them. And it was almost like a scientific observation and he would kind of study their form at different times. And at the same time that he was doing that, there's a scientist called Luke Howard. Um, He's one of the very early meteorologists and he was actually studying the clouds in a similar, similar way and would do lots of watercolors of those clouds um, and ended up naming the clouds. Um, so he came up with these different forms of clouds, these different categories, which became you know, the basis that we still use today for the scientific understanding of, of cloud formations.
2: And even the terms of scientists and artists, it's only recently that we've used them to define a career. Um, you had artists who were scientists or scientists who were poets? Absolutely. And that's
0: one of the main things that we've tried to pull out um, through the the series and the exhibition and the book, um, is that actually if you look at the 19th century or even earlier the 18th century, you know, you don't have this same distinction that we would have today between art and science. They're very much intertwined. Um, It's actually all about being engaged with the world and and thinking, you know, bringing ideas to the fore and um, sharing that uh, knowledge with others. Um, and there isn't this kind of you know, distinction between the two. A really good example of that is actually um, the creation of the South Kensington Museum, which is the basis for the Science Museum. It's the original museum that was created in 1857 after the great exhibition. Um, and that's the basis for the v and the Science Museum. And at that point, uh, they were inquiring, acquiring things relating to the industrial arts and the decorative arts. So, so those two worlds were very much seen as together and in one museum. Um, and it's only, you know, when you move into the 20th century that you start to see that division coming in. And that's reflected in the fact that you start to have a separate science museum to what we now know as the v So, you don't just see it in the discipline itself, but you see it in the institutions that um, are surrounding
2: it. And what happened in the 20th century to cause that divide? Uh, I don't think there's any
0: one thing. You can't come and put your finger on it. But um, to a certain extent, there's a professionalisation of of the the scientific um, disciplines. You know, there's a need for lots of different disciplines to start carving out their space. And so as you build up those particular disciplines, you have specific scientific journals that communicate that knowledge. Um, You know, you have institutions that are developing research in those particular areas. So this starts to become um, more of a need for people to identify with each other and and a certain group and there it becomes much more stratified. Is that a word? No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> becomes much more segmented in terms of um the science that you see happening so.
2: art was also and still is a critic of science can you tell me about any stories in the art of innovation that show art being used to criticize oh
0: yeah I mean there's lots of times that I think that that artists kind of question what the approach that science is taking or the massive changes that are happening around us that have been implemented by science and technology. Um, One very clear example that we draw on is during the First World War with the development of DADA, a new kind of movement um, that really came um, from a concern and a fear about the way that the First World War had, had gone and about this new time where people were being, you know, maimed and injured um, due to the new technologies that had been developed
2: and what was the dada movement
0: i'm not an art
2: historian
0: so i'm not sure i'm very confident to go into a lot of detail about it um, i mean how do you talk about i mean so in many ways the dada movement was almost uh a kind of anarchy you know it was a rejection of everything that science and progress and technology stood for and one artist otto dix really um kind of violently immortalises this through um, this picture called The Card Players, which is three soldiers playing cards, um, but actually they're almost not human. You know, their parts of their body have been removed. Um, they've lost their limbs. Um, they're playing cards using their feet. One has a, a peg leg. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very shocking image, actually, that shows the kind of horror of, of this new mechanised warfare and what had happened to um, people as a result of that. Um, so it's both a critique on on the war itself, but also on, on the kind of conditions and the economic conditions that had um, resulted from the war. And the fact that people were now being expected to kind of contribute to the economy in some way. So they're almost being turned into machines. You had to provide your value to, to the economy um, by being useful in some way. Um, and so in the exhibition, we show a prosthetic arm um, where you can actually have the hand is replaced with tools that are useful for doing work um, so the whole section is about this kind of rejection of rationality and this rejection of the way that um, humans have become seen as tools for production and tools for efficiency um, and we've lost the humanity mm. behind it um, so there's a real need um, to kind of look at that in totally in contrast to other times where you've got the two worlds completely intertwined um, and you might see uh, artists and scientists much more in support of each other.
2: Technology is now assisting art. The the developments we see in science and tech are contributing to art itself. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Um, Let me just think of a good example. One example you use in the series is the Polaroid.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are times that you see artists um, as absolutely working with new scientific and technological developments, um, and as as scientists of, as having helped to push those new artistic forms forward. So something like Polaroid is a really good example. So the Polaroid Corporation was set up um, by a man called Edwin Land. Um, He is interesting because he had some scientific background. He he wasn't really a formal scientist. He didn't have a scientific degree, Um, but he was fascinated with scientific research and questioning. He would work long hours in the lab until he kind of resolved something. Um, and he was very interested in not just how you create a camera that can can take an instant picture and develop that picture all in one machine, um, but also fascinated in color perception. So how is it that humans actually see color? And he did lots of experiments around that because he was thinking about color within Polaroid. Um so it's a really interesting way of looking at how somebody, you know, with a sci- bit of a scientific background, started to use science to think about um, the development of a new technique, and it's that new technology that then goes forward to people like David Hockney, who did incredible um, joiner um, pictures using lots and lots of Polaroid um, photographs, and again, you can see that just as Land was thinking about human perception. So does David Hopney think about that through the use of Polaroid? So he's um, taking pictures of. For the example we use in the exhibition it is um, uh, the sun on the pool um, in LA. So he's got lots of um, photographs of this pool in LA. He took them, you know, over a short period, but he then pulls them together to build up this image that almost. Um, kind of stops time for a moment and allows you to look at the picture in the way that an eye would actually see so rather than a single photograph where you just captured an instant and that's that he allows you to look at the image in a way that you're focusing on particular details um, in the way that we actually look at an image I mean I'm looking at you now I don't just see one image you know I see I look at different elements. I look at your eyes. I look at your dress. You know, um, so what he was trying to do is actually recreate using um, Polaroid technology a way. Of thinking about how people um, see the world around them so it's a really nice way of thinking about the two things where they're kind of interacting you've got the the technology and the science both feeding the art but also the other way around.
2: You mentioned the long hours they have to put in the passion they have these are attributes that both scientists and artists have Uh, there are a lot of similarities between the two aren't there? Um,
0: I think absolutely yes there's a lot of similarities between the two but as well as Passion and dedication, um, I think a really important one is imagination. Um, so it was Einstein that said that um, imagination is more important than knowledge. Um, and I feel like actually, you know, for artists and for scientists, imagination is absolutely critical um, because it's not just the hard work. It's actually the, being able to think outside the block box not block. It's actually being able to think outside uh, the box and think in original ways that's um, very important to, to both.
2: Should scientists today pursue art in that case?
0: I think people should pursue whatever they're interested in. I'm not here to dictate, you know, all scientists should be drawing at the weekends. <laughs> um, I think, you know, following your interests, but I think for many people, if you begin to follow your interests, you realise that those divisions break down, that they are constructed divisions. And actually, um, if we can you know, think more broadly and educate people more broadly, then it invites us to be inquiring about the world around us. Um, and naturally from that, I think you find that those two worlds are intertwined.
2: And art was often used to educate the general public, wasn't it? What examples are there of art being used as a scientific communication tool?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talked about art as an observer, and I think, um, you know, it's observing and then sharing and, and communicating that more broadly. So one of the sections we have in the exhibition, the first section of the ex- exhibition is called Sociable Science, and it's all about how art um has worked with science to communicate scientific ideas, be that through um, politics or, um, you know, through other forms. So a really interesting example um, is the first story we start off with, which is the Joseph Wright of Derby. Um, It's called A Philosopher Giving That Lecture on the Orrery in Which a Lamp is Put in Place of the Sun, and it shows this... um, kind of majestic almost philosopher um, in the centre of the painting in red of which gathered around him is um, a a cluster of people including children um, and they are centred on this orrery um, which is showing the movement of the planets in the solar system. Um, And at the centre of the image you have this sense of the sun spreading light on all of their faces Um, but it's also this sense that scientific knowledge is being spread across their faces. Um, So they're all learning new scientific um, ideas, the ideas that Newton had first put forward about the movement of the planets. Um, So it's images such as this that are quite interesting, but we also know that Joseph Wright of Derby had actually seen a demonstration um, of an orrery, And um, we think that he may have seen a demonstration by a man called James Ferguson, who actually came to Derby just before um, Joseph Wright painted this picture. And uh, Ferguson was very enthusiastic about communicating scientific knowledge um, to a broader public and communicating the ideas of Newton. Um, So he published lots of books and went around and gave lectures Um, in coffee houses you know in lecture halls really to make sure that uh, these ideas about scientific um, you know these new ideas were being spread to the masses were being spread to the middle classes
2: there's a story about artists responding to the royal institution lectures I, i wasn't aware of such a history
0: the image you're talking about is the gilray where he um It shows a particular scientist who worked um, at the Royal Institution called Humphrey Davy. And Humphrey Davy was um, interested in the effects of nitrous oxide, what we now call laughing gas. Um, And he conducted lots of um, scientific research into this, but mainly um, he did it with friends because um, they were extremely interested in the effects that this new gas had um, and he had co- you know friends and colleagues such as Robert Southey, the poet um and he they would because they found it so difficult to describe. Um, the experiences that they were having with this new um, new gas, they, there wasn't really a language for that. There certainly wasn't a scientific language. They turned to poetry. And so Robert Southey actually um, used poetry to describe the effects of nitrous oxide. Um, and so did Davy himself. Um, but this is interesting, this picture, um, because it's actually at the time um, where the French Revolution had happened. There's a lot of um, concern about political radicals, and some of this research was seen to be quite radical in its nature. And so Gilray is really, you know, laughing at the the great and the good of of London society who are gathering around, um, blowing this hot air um, <laughs> with each other and trying this this new gas out. Um, So I think it's a wonderful commentary both on the politics of the time as well as on the the science um, of the time and of the ability of art to um, caricature science and and laugh at new ideas and new progress.
2: Can you describe what's going on in Gilray's cartoon?
0: Um, So it's described as scientific researchers, new discoveries in pneumatics or an experimental lecture on the powers of air... And you have men and women all gathered around Humphrey Davy with this big airbag that he's holding in the middle with air coming out of the top, presumably nitrous oxide coming out of the top. Um, and uh, one particular gentleman who's trying this nitrous oxide and is uh, farting from the other end all over the, the crowds um, behind him. <laughs> uh, but yes, they're very much the 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 elite of uh, London society, aren't they?
2: So, was this what the public thought of scientists at the time? Were they laughing at scientists?
0: I don't think it's so much a, a laughing at scientists. I think um, what was interesting is that um, this is more intertwined with the politics of the time. So it, it's kind of laughing and ridiculing some of these new ideas, perhaps radical ideas. That had been coming in, and this type of science was associated with those ideas. Um, So it's more a a question about um, the elite groups of society um, and science's role in that than just laughing at science.
2: So sometimes art is a friend, sometimes a critic. Do they ever overlap?
0: I I think often it's a a friend and a critic and I think um, the way that the two interrelate is often um, it allows us to question this sense of progress and progress can be both a positive thing and a a negative thing, you know. Um, And so to have um, a way of, you know, thinking about this sense of progress you know are we are we sad about the past that that's gone are we nostalgic for that past that we've left behind or are we um you know excited about the new future and what it could behold um art allows us to kind of question that that those two scientific and technological realities you know, what's been before and what may be coming um So often technology holds a great promise. You know, we might be able to go faster than we've ever gone before. We might be able to travel, you know, well, we've traveled to the moon, but we may go to Mars. You know, all of those um, kind of opportunities to really think about what could come next. Um, But it also allows us to question perhaps what we might lose as a result of that um, and to be you know, nostalgic for, for that past that we had. Um, and I think you see that um, in many artworks at the same time. I think that's quite interesting. Um, so another example is is the um, Rain, Steam and Speed, the Turner um, image. So this is, you know, at the time um, that there were enormous changes in the railways. You've got the 1830s massive kind of development of, of the railways across britain um and turner painted uh, let's show you this one um turner painted this incredible um picture with this locomotive coming over the maidenhead bridge um and this was exhibited in 1844 and it really is um You know, both the excitement of the speed that these new railways could travel at. You know, if you were going on this locomotive, it's called the Firefly, um, you were traveling faster than anybody had ever traveled in the world before. You were really state of the art. Um, So in this amazing picture, he captures that sense of speed. But you've got the rain and the steam. You've got all this other swirling kind of emotion that's coming through. Um so whilst it's you know the excitement of progress, I think it also very neatly illuminates um that slight nostalgia about what's been left behind. Um and you have you know this little boat in, in the corner. Um there's also you can't see it in this image, but there's a, a hare um running away. Um, and it is really a question about um, you know, do we want this? progress um should we be excited by such progress or or should we be fearful of the changes um, that it's making and the changes to society that we might never be able to go backwards again um, but this is very you know it's wonderful to have this type of painting in the exhibition um, but we're also delighted that we're able to show some of the scientific objects that accompanied this time. So we actually have a model of the Firefly locomotive um, that's come from our collections within the Science Museum group. Um, and we will be uh, placing that on display in, in, in the exhibition. It's a beautiful uh, rosewood model that was made by um, a man called Daniel Gooch. Um And it really expresses, you know, that sense of change and commemorates, you know, the fact that this was um, an enormous step forward in terms of the the speed and rate of change that was happening in Britain.
2: The exhibition for the Art of Innovation, what will that look like? What would it be like to walk through the exhibit? So the way we've approached
0: this exhibition is to think about um, 20 wonderful stories. Um, It's divided into four sections. So there's a first section called Sociable Science. Um, that looks about how scientific ideas are developed and communicated um, through religion, through politics, um, through fashion. And then second section, um, called Human Machines, that is about the relationship between the machine and the human. Um, that asks questions around the efficiency of humans, about whether technology is a tool for liberalisation of humanity um, or whether it's dehumanising and and breaking us down. Um, Then there's a third section called the troubled horizons and this really um, touches on those questions that we're talking about around what constitutes progress, what does progress really um, look like. Um, and so it's about how artists and scientists question our relationship with the landscape and relationship with the environment and then the final section um, is called meaningful matter and it looks at how artists and scientists might categorize nature and explore nature Um, so clouds or molecules um, or plant species Um, so through this kind of structure in these twenty stories, we hope to really place the art and the science at the same level, give it the same status, and in many cases, um, there isn't a distinction between the artist um, object and the scientific object. The the artworks and and the scientific works are indistinguishable. Um, so there's you know nice examples where you can see that. Um, Something has been developed by somebody that is neither an artist or a scientist.
2: Why is it important for the scientific objects and the art to be placed on the same level, status free almost?
0: The premise for the series and the exhibition is that um, there are not two separate worlds. So CP Snow gave a lecture um, called The Two Cultures in 1959. Um, and in that he described, you know, these the division between the arts and the scientists. Um, we feel very strongly that, you know, they shouldn't be thought of in that way. Um, and so to see them as, you know, one culture, you know, that we define and um, think about in many different ways, I think is is really important. Um, yeah. So if you think about it as... One culture, it's important that there isn't a, a, you know, a hierarchy between the two and that um, science isn't given a higher status than art or, or the other way around. Um, I think they interlink in the ideas that they play off, they you know question uh, the world around us um, and they critique what's happening and that's um, an important kind of tool for, for humans to, to kind of take things forward.
2: Out of those twenty stories, have you got a personal favourite? Oh, um,
0: I yes, I do. <laughs> it's a bit mean to ask me to uh, say which one I like best because it's a bit like choosing your favourite child. But. Um, I particularly like the story um, about uh, the BBC series Edge of Darkness, which was a television series in the 1980s. Um, This is, um, I think, a really compelling piece of um, television drama, really exciting series. It looks um, at... Um, the kind of nuclear state at a time that there was, you know, a lot of questions around nuclear politics about the role of nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Um, but it does throw it does so through a really fascinating um, drama about a man trying to uncover why his daughter has been murdered. Um, but in this series, um, there's a reference to. Gaia um, and a reference to some of the ideas that the scientist Jim Lovelock put together um, around this idea of the planet in equilibrium, you know, that the planet will sustain life. Um, And so I really like this particular story because I think it's um, interesting in the way that it combines James Lovelock's ideas about environmentalism, about humanity's role within the planet, um, whether we play a positive or a negative um, effect within that, um, and at the same time allows a television drama to kind of bring in ideas around mysticism and spiritualism um, into this kind of scientific discipline. So it's a real, um, it, it really strongly shows how science can play such a, important uh, role in the dialogue around um, our culture as a whole, you know, where it invites us to think about scientific culture as part of our... um, What's the term? (laughs) It invites us to think about scientific culture as as part of something that we're all talking about um, all the time, you know, through a TV drama that, you know, at the time one many BAFTA awards, you know, was highly acclaimed Um, and so it's a quite nice kind of intertwining of those two worlds. You wouldn't necessarily expect to come across the ideas of, of the scientist Jim Lovelock in a TV drama.
2: The art of innovation looks right across history from the 18th century to present day. What is the current relationship between art and science?
0: It's interesting, I think as science has started to move in some areas, say in theoretical physics, it's much more um, about the imagination and about what's possible. Um, So, you know, again, the role of of artists in being able to invite us to open up those questions is really important. Um, In terms of kind of... Where we are with art and science, I think we're very interested in thinking about a kind of broad culture for education and making sure that art and science are both part of uh, you know the educational landscape. Um, and so if you're thinking in the current day, um, you know many people are very engaged in scientific ideas. Relating to the environment, because we can all see the massive changes that are happening um, to the world around us. So, actually, um, you know, embracing that, um, you know, engaging with that and saying, well, you know, places like the Science Museum are a wonderful place to come and broaden your scientific horizons, Um, you broaden the level of knowledge um, that you have about science and not to be. Afraid of science, I think some people are a little bit scared that perhaps they don't know enough, and, and they, they, you know, that they they ought to understand science more. But actually, um, I think you know, in many ways, science is underlying so much of what we do think about that. Um, there's many ways that we can all
2: engage in science. And not just by coming to see the exhibit, but having the radio series and the book. If you can't get to London, you can still enjoy the project and find out more about the history of art and science.
0: Absolutely. And, and the radio series is really really fun i think it's given it's been a great opportunity to go and talk to lots of other people so whilst uh, sirian blatchford the director of the science museum and i present the series um, we've been all over the country talking um, to different people scientists um, artists curators um, historians you know to get their perspective on the changes that you can see through these 20 stories. So we've worked with a wonderful team at the BBC to really um, bring in a range of different voices and different perspectives into the radio series. So whilst the the book is very much in my kind of um, take on on the art of innovation, the radio series um, broadens that out to a, a bigger perspective.
2: Finally, I wonder, what do you hope listeners will take away from the art of innovation?
0: Well, I hope they'll enjoy it. <laughs> um, um, you know, there's some wonderful stories, some really exciting, interesting stories. So I hope it might tell people some some new original stories that perhaps they haven't thought of before. And I hope it will enable people to maybe question, um, you know, question that divide so when we talk of art and science actually you know should we really be trying to embrace the two worlds and see them as more interconnected Um, because I think we um, we can all benefit as a society from um, seeing art and science as more intertwined and interlinked Um, I think it would make both art and science better.
1: That was Dr Tilly Blythe speaking about the art of innovation. Listen to Tilly and Sir Ian Blatchford host the 20-part BBC Radio 4 series available through BBC Sounds. If you can make it to London, the Science Museum's major free exhibition runs from now until the 24th of January. Or, alternatively, track down a copy of 20 stories from the history of art and science in the Art of Innovation book published by Transworld. For the latest in scientific discoveries and innovations, check out the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine. We find out why there's no overpopulation crisis, how chocolate boosts brain health, and ask if we should all keep our pet cats indoors. If you'd like to find out more about the relationship between science and art, why not listen to our previous podcast with Martin Clayton, head of prints and drawings for the Royal Collection Trust at Windsor Castle. Martin explains why Leonardo da Vinci's scientific legacy is so often overlooked. Or, alternatively, listen to scientist James Lovelock talking about his life, career, and Gaia theory in our episode recording on the eve of his 100th birthday.
0: Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.